If you have a Bible with you, grab it. Today we are in week 19 of a series on the book of Genesis, and we're going to be in Genesis 19 together. Genesis chapter 19. Well, part of my job as a pastor requires me to preach funerals. And experience taught me early on that some funerals are really easy and other funerals are really hard. Okay, the easy ones are the ones where I get to stand up and talk about a person who lived really well. They loved Jesus, they served others, they were pillars of their families, they worked hard, they were humble, they just really strived to make a positive impact in the world. Uh, The hard ones are those where I have to stand up and talk about the life of a person who didn't live so well. They didn't love Jesus. They didn't serve people. They weren't pillars of their family, but destroyers of their family. They were arrogant. They were apathetic, self-absorbed, and only ever lived for themselves. And I'm sure a lot of us in the room, we've probably been to a funeral like that, haven't we? (laughs) Where the guy like me is up front trying really hard to say nice things about the person in the box, but everybody in the room knows the truth. They wasted the one life they were given. Listen, here's what I want you to know right out of the gate today. Please don't miss this. Every single one of us sitting in this room today is capable of wasting our life in that way regardless of what we believe. And what we're going to see today from Genesis 19, it it absolutely proves that. Uh, If you were not here last Sunday for that message, I would strongly encourage you to go back and either watch it or, or listen to it this week because that message is the prequel to today's message. You see, from Genesis 18, we learned about God's plan to destroy two wicked cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Well, today in Genesis 19, we see the execution of that plan. But before God executes it, he delivers one man from destruction. And this is a man I would describe as a believer who wasted his life. The man I'm talking about is Abraham's nephew, Lot. And the reason I describe him as a believer who wasted his life is because in the New Testament book of 2 Peter chapter 2, Peter calls him righteous. Okay, he actually says that he was a righteous man whose righteous soul was tormented over the things he saw and heard in Sodom. So in other words, according to Peter, Lot was a believer, a man counted righteous by God because of his faith in him. But, listen, but if all we knew about Lot was what we find in Genesis 19, there is no way we would ever think it. And you'll see exactly what I mean as we work our way through the passage, okay? Uh, I have titled today's message, When Believers Waste Their Lives. When Believers Waste Their Lives. And what we're going to do in our time together is we're going to use the life of Lot as a case study to talk about five ways that you and I as believers can waste our lives today, all right? So let's dive in and get to work. Here we go. Genesis 19, starting in verse 1. We've got a lot of text to read today, so just hang in, but it's all important, so I didn't want to cut any of it out. Here's what it says. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. And when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. And they said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. Look at this. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. 
That word know in the Hebrew is a very sexual, very intimate term. In fact, when you read this passage in other translations of the Bible, like the NASB or the NIV, it says that we may have relations with them or that we may have sex with them. So you get the idea of what's going on here. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and you do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn. So here's this dude who's a foreigner. He's shown up in our land, and now he's become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you, Lot, than with them. And then they pressed hard against the man, Lot, and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house. So the angels are grabbing him, bringing him back inside. And they shut the door and they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both great and small, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. So even in blindness, they're still trying to sin. It's crazy, isn't it? Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, anyone else you have in the city, bring them out of the place. Here's the destruction announcement. For we're about to destroy this place because the outcry against his people has become so great before the Lord and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. And so Lot went out and he said to his sons-in-laws who were to marry his daughters up, get out of this place for the Lord's about to destroy it. Uh, But his son-in-laws, the last part of that verse, they just thought he was joking. They didn't really take him seriously. We'll stop there and talk, okay? In these first 14 verses, what we find are two ways that believers waste their lives. And the first way is this. If you take a note, you can just write this stuff down. Believers waste their lives when they indulge the world instead of influencing it. They waste their lives when they indulge the world instead of influencing it. All right, in verse 1, we are told that when these two angels who were with the Lord back in Genesis 18 during his visit to Abraham, when they finally entered the city of Sodom, they found Lot sitting in the gate. And so what we see is this progression in Lot's life. If you go back to Genesis 13, Lot enters the land that God promised to give Abraham, his uncle. And do you remember this if you were here? Abraham Abraham very generously lets Lot choose whatever plot of land he wants for himself first. And Lot picks a plot of land near where? Near Sodom. Because he knew, man, if I'm living down there, life's going to be good. I'll be able to enjoy the prosperity, the comfort, the materialism the city offers me. Well, a short time later in Genesis 14, Lot goes from living near Sodom to living in Sodom. And then here in chapter 19, what we see is Lot sitting in the gate of Sodom. Look, the gate is where people met and did business. And Lot sitting in the gate, it implies that he was now at this point in his life a very prominent man in the city. Yet the problem was this. Here was a guy who failed to use his prominence to influence the city in any way. And we know that was the case. Why? Because there wasn't a single righteous person there except for him. And this is the whole reason God destroyed the place. I mean, you can just picture it, can't you? There's Lot living it up in Sodom, enjoying all the earthly things the city has to offer. He's got a big house, a nice car, a fancy wardrobe, a corner office, a really important title. Yet he's sitting back and he's doing nothing to stop the spiritual decay of the world around him. And here's the truth. If we are not careful as followers of Jesus Christ today, we can be guilty of the same thing. Guilty of enjoying, listen, the comfort, the prosperity, the materialism that our society offers to us while never doing anything to influence the world around us for the sake of Christ. 
And please don't misunderstand what I'm saying, okay? Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying right now that it's wrong to be comfortable or to enjoy life or to have money or even to have nice stuff. But look, it is very wrong to indulge all those things for your personal gain and pleasure while never leveraging them to advance the kingdom of God in our world. You see, if you allow your stuff and your success to distract you from your God-given purpose, which is, we've been learning this whole series, to bear the image of God rightly in the world for His glory and the good of people, well, your life might be comfortable and it might be enjoyable, but it'll be wasted. The second way believers waste their lives is this. When they attack certain sins while approving others. Believers waste their lives when they attack certain sins while approving others. So the angels come into the city and Lot shows them hospitality by inviting them into his home and feeding them. But at first they didn't want to go. Did you catch that? No, we're good. We're going to stay out here in the town square. And uh, Lot said, no, 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 really, you don't want to do that. Like apparently some bad things went down in the city square at night. And so he presses them, trust me, you want to sleep indoors. And so they agree. But as we see in the passage, Them going to Lot's house made absolutely no difference. Shortly after they got there, all the men of the city, both young and old, they surround the house and they demand that Lot send out the visitors. And their plan, this is where it gets graphic, but this is the Bible, so we have to talk about it. Their plan was to rape these two angels who appeared as men. To perform violent homosexual acts upon them. And so if you showed up today wondering, like, how could God ever destroy a city like Sodom? That's why. Due to wicked behavior like that, you see, when a society reaches this point of moral decline, God has no choice but to put a stop to it. Now, what really fascinates me, though, is Lot's response to this whole thing. Right? I mean, at first, he starts out really strong. You know, he steps outside the door. God, hey, quit acting like a bunch of heathens. Come on, y'all, you're acting wickedly, and it's almost cause for celebration. Like, way to go, Lot. I mean, you're kind of a turd, but you know what? Great job condemning sin. But then in his follow-up, he just straight crashes and burns, doesn't he? Hey, look, instead of raping them, I've got two virgin daughters inside. Why don't you let me send them out, and you can do to them whatever you want? What? Like, how in the world as a dad do you even make a proposal like that? I'll be honest, like it makes me want to throw up. I got two little girls at home, and I cannot even imagine how a thought like that crosses your mind in the first place. It is horrific, it is horrendous, it is disgusting. But what his proposal goes to show is this, that after living in Sodom all those years, Sodom has started to live inside of him. And again, my friends, listen to me, if we are not careful, the same can be true of us today. You see, one of the clearest signs that the world has started to live inside of you as a believer in Jesus Christ is this. You have a willingness to attack certain sins while approving others. And I'm going to give you some examples of what I mean, all right? Uh, There are Christians in our world today who will stand up and rail on homosexuality, yet they're fine looking at pornography and engaging in sex outside of marriage. There are Christians who will stand up and condemn abortion, rightfully so. We should stand up for the lives of the unborn, but the problem is at the same time they hold to very racist and very sexist mentalities. There are Christians who will stand and speak against the dangers of drug use and alcoholism, yet they're gluttonous and they eat too much. 
Come on, I could give examples all day long, but my point is really simple. When you and I as believers classify and categorize sin as if some sin is really bad and other sin is not such a big deal, we become hypocrites. People stop taking us seriously. And when people stop taking us seriously, the gospel message that we carry becomes noise off of our lips. And when that message becomes noise, my friends, unfortunately, we are wasting our lives. Is anybody feeling encouraged yet? We'll get there, I promise. All right, just stay with me. But for now, we're going to keep going. All right, verse 15. Go back to the text. It just gets worse from here. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up! Take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. And look at this the next phrase. We're going to come back to this. This is huge. Verse 16. But he lingered. <laughs> but he lingered. And so the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand. And the Lord, I love this phrase, and the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and they set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, escape for your life. Don't look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you've shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee, and it's a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. And he said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the the name of the city was called Zor, which simply in Hebrew means little one. All right, so a lot of little one stuff going on in the passage there. All right, way number three that believers waste their lives is this. They waste their lives when they linger in sin they've been saved from. Believers waste their lives when they linger in sin they've been saved from. So morning comes, and the angels say, Lot, it's time. You need to get up and get out of here, bro. It's about to go down. Like, get your wife and get your daughters. Destruction is on the way. And then we read in verse 16, but he lingered. But he lingered. So you almost see this tension going on inside of Lot in this moment. Here's God saving him from sin and judgment, but he is wrestling. All right, I kind of want to be saved, but I kind of want to stay. Listen, in light of that, here's the question I have for you today, and be honest with yourself, okay? Here's the question. What sin are you lingering in that God has saved you from? What sin are you lingering in that God has saved you from. In other words, let me ask it like this. Uh, What is that sin in your life that has created that great tension in you? Okay, I know God has delivered me from this, but I don't really want to leave it behind. This is a really important question. Here's why. Because the longer you linger in it, the greater opportunity you give it to take you out. This past week, I was uh, helping do bath time with my, my girls and I was getting my uh, oldest daughter and uh, my youngest daughter kind of dried up, getting them out of the tub. And as the water was draining out of the tub, my oldest daughter, Rowan, she's seven. She's like dancing around, you know, and she's slipping. And I kept telling her, baby, you need to stop that. Like, seriously, you're going to get hurt. Sit down, wait your turn, quit acting like a fool. Like, I'm telling you, things are going to go bad. Well, she didn't listen and she didn't stop. And before she knew it, boom, feet came out from under her. Bam, hit the bottom of the tub like butt first. And it turned into a cry fest. 
And it was one of those moments where like, told you so, right? You listen to your daddy. But, but listen, I, I share that to say this. Lingering in sin is like that. Lingering in sin is like that. You can mess around with it all you want, but at some point it will get the best of you. And once sin gets the best of you, it becomes really difficult to impact the world around you. And so my friends, what do we do? What do we do as followers of Jesus Christ? Well, it's simple. We do what the angels told Lot to do, and we run. We run. We don't stop. We don't look back. We don't reconsider. We remember sin's power to destroy us, and we run for our lives. And here's the really great news today. God has given us, in His grace, everything we need to run from sin. You see, there is this beautiful picture of salvation in the text uh, as Lot is busy lingering, the two angels are like, all right, we ain't doing this. Come on, you're coming with me. And they seize Lot by the arms along with his wife and along with his daughters. And in an act of mercy, they bring them outside the city. Listen, can I just point out that is exactly what the God of the universe has done for every single one of us in the room today who know Jesus Christ. Right through his life, death, and resurrection, God has seized us in an act of mercy and he has brought us out of sin and judgment. And because we've been brought out of sin and judgment, we are now free from the power of sin. We're now free from the penalty of sin. One day in eternity, praise God, we're going to be free from the presence of sin. Jesus Christ, who is seated on the throne of heaven at the right hand of God, has sent the Holy Spirit into the world, and His Spirit now lives in us. And because His Spirit lives in us, we have everything we need to kill our sin long before it kills us. Amen? Now listen, I know, let me acknowledge, I know it doesn't always feel like that, does it? Just let's be real, it's church, we might as well tell the truth. It doesn't always feel like we have what it takes to kill sin. Doesn't always feel like we have what it takes to resist the enemy. And the reason it doesn't always feel that way is because as broken, sinful people, we still battle against something called the flesh. Okay, there's this part of us that has yet to be redeemed. And it's that part of us that constantly attempts to pull us away from God and his way of life and toward sin. But here's what we always have to remember when the flesh is pulling us toward sin, We just have to know that the part of us that desires sin is powerless against the one who's delivered us from it. Amen? Let me just say it again because I want you to hear this. The part of us that desires sin is powerless against the one who's delivered us from it. So what do we do? We run. We run. And if you don't want to waste your life, that's my challenge and encouragement to you today. With the help of the Holy Spirit of God that lives in you, you kill your sin and you run for your life. The next way, number four, that believers waste their lives is this. When they make selfish demands of the God who saved them. When they make selfish demands of the God who saved them. So as the angels are leading Lot and his family out of the city, do you remember the instruction? Lot escape to the hills (laughs) and lots response instead of going yes and amen i'm gonna do what you want me to do mr angels i'm i'm all in lot goes oh no no we can't do that so sorry we we can't do that and then he starts to negotiate and he starts making selfish demands of the angels that are saving him okay uh if you go back and read the text you find him going you know I just so appreciate your salvation. I mean, thank you for your love and your kindness and your grace and your favor in my life. But Mr. Angels, we can't go to the hills. 
Like, I'm afraid if I go to the hills, I'm not going to be safe from judgment. There's this small little city over here, and so I would much rather go there. I think I'll be safer if I go there. So instead of doing what you want me to do, will you just let me do what I want to do in this moment? Like, thank you, please. And what's crazy to me is that the angels actually agree. But hear me, we should not assume based on their agreement that it is ever okay to make selfish demands of God. Because it's not. In fact, I would say making selfish demands of God is highly dangerous because it assumes two things. Number one, that you know better than he does. And number two, that God somehow owes you something. I mean, come on, have you ever found yourself saying something like this in prayer? Uh, Hey, God, listen, I've come up with this great plan, and I think if we do things my way in this moment or in this season, things are going to go a lot better for me than if we do it your way. I mean, come on, I've, I've put together this whole strategy. Like, I really think if you let me do it the way I want to do it, I'll be a whole lot safer. Or have you ever found yourself saying this or even implying this to the Lord? Um, hey, God, thank you so much for your love and your kindness and your grace and your favor. And, and God, thanks so much for the cross. You know, that was cool what you did for me through the life and death and resurrection of your son and all. But you know what? There are some other things that I need you to do for me. And if you don't do these things, I don't know if I'll survive. I mean, come on, we may never confess it out loud like, oh, yeah, I've been there. But if we're honest, we've all been there at some point in our life, haven't we? And can I tell you the greatest danger of thinking this way? When that is your mentality, you start to believe that God exists for you instead of the other way around. And when you think that God exists for you, for your glory, for your renown, for your honor, for your greatness, and you receive from him the answer opposite the one lot received, no, no. We're not going to do it your way. We're going to do it my way. You simply don't know how to handle that. And you feel betrayed by God. And you feel dishonored by God. And you get really frustrated with God. And the temptation becomes to abandon him and to make things happen on your own apart from him. And can I just tell you, when you end up in that place in life, unfortunately, you are wasting your life. Now, there's one final point I want to make. So go back to the text with me, if you will. We're just going to read the rest of it together. Verses 23 through 38. Listen. So the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zor. And then the Lot rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire, or some translations say fire and brimstone. So you ever heard people talk about those old, like, fire and brimstone preachers? If you're wondering, where does that come from? Right here, right? Preachers just dropping judgment on people nonstop. God pours out sulfur and fire uh, from heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. We'll talk about that in a minute. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. And so it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in the land uh, in which Lot had lived. Now look at this next part. This is shocking, okay? You guys might, when you leave, want to warn all the families who are bringing kids into the gathering today to just send them to kids' ministry today, okay? Because this is like some adult stuff. This is mature content. Look at this. Now Lot went up out of Zor and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zor. 
And he lived in a cave with his two daughters, and the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there's not a man on the earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us uh, make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. And so they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in, and she lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. And then the next day, the same thing happened with the younger daughter. And then if you jump down, it says, thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He's the father of the Moabites to this day. And the younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. The final way believers waste their lives is this. They pass down worldliness excuse me, over godliness. Believers waste their lives when they pass down worldliness over godliness. So Lot finally comes into the city of Zor, this little place that he wanted to go. And after he reached that city, God destroyed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, it's believed, and I tend to buy into this view, it's believed by a lot of scholars that he did this through the natural means of an earthquake. You see, these two cities sat along what is known as the Great Syrian-African Rift. And so there's a view that says that during the destruction, what happened is that this rift opened up and God literally used a firestorm from beneath the earth to wipe these two cities from it. And so again, destruction takes place. And then we get this picture on this same morning of Abraham going out to the place where he had met with the Lord back in Genesis 18, and he's looking down on these cities. And I can only imagine what he's thinking. I hope my nephew made it out alive. I hope Lot made it. I hope God saved him. And I love the language here. We're told that God remembered Abraham. He remembered the prayers that he had prayed back in Genesis 18. God, would you just save righteous people from destruction? Do you remember that from last week? God, if there's just 10 people, will you spare the whole city? Well, there wasn't 10. There was just one. And God saved that one righteous person, Lot, from destruction. He saved him. But what's so heartbreaking is what Lot leaves behind and passes down after his salvation. Okay, first he's remembered for being the guy whose wife was turned into a pillar of salt. And I know to some of us that sounds absolutely ridiculous, doesn't it? Like, come on. Because in our minds, what we have is this picture of like that old, terrible B movie, you know, where Lot and his wife and daughters, they're running, and all of a sudden she just kind of barely glances back, and boom, she's crystallized from toe to head. I don't think that's what happened at all. And the picture we get in the text is very different from that. Okay, the picture we get is, is this one. Um, Lot's wife, she's brought outside the city by the angels with her husband and her two girls, but she's reluctant to leave. And so she just hangs far behind. She doesn't follow her husband. And as the earth opens up, these sulfuric gases rise, and they likely take her over, killing her because of her proximity to the destruction. And as her corpse lay on the ground, it's encrusted by salt and other debris, and over time she becomes that pillar of salt. What's interesting is that when you study history, there's a historian named Josephus who was alive at the time of Jesus who actually claims to have seen this pillar with his own eyes. And so we actually have historical evidence that this actually happened. The second thing that Lot was remembered for, and this is crazy, he's remembered for being the guy who got his own daughters pregnant. It's disgusting. It's horrific. But eventually they leave the little city of Zor behind. Uh, he was some 
or for some reason, afraid to keep living there. So he leaves Zor and he goes up to the hills where the angels told him to go in the first place. And he lives in a cave with his daughters. And his daughters decide, hey, in an effort to continue our family line, we should get our dad drunk and sleep with him. And so even though God has taken them out of Sodom, they're still acting like they live there. Okay, they execute the plan commit incest with their own dad both of them get pregnant and they give birth to two sons from those two sons come two nations the moabites and the ammonites both of which would later become enemies of the nation of israel hear me that's lot's legacy although god destroyed the wicked city he was living in He's remembered as the guy who passed down the wickedness of that city to both his daughters and the succeeding generations. And here's what I want you to know today. Please don't miss this. You and I are entirely capable of passing down a similar legacy. We are, even as believers in Jesus Christ. You see, if you refuse to love Jesus with all your heart, if you refuse to follow Jesus with all of your passion and ambition and instead you adopt and practice the wickedness of the world in which we live, as a result of that, you make it a whole lot easier on the generations that come after you to do the same. Or they might not, but chances are they probably, they probably will. Why? Because they saw you doing it. And oftentimes kids do what they see their parents doing. And you will be remembered as that man or that woman that passed down worldliness in place of godliness. Corruption over Christ-likeness. And when that day finally comes for you and you're the person in the box at the front of the room and that guy's working really hard to say nice things about you, everybody in the room is going to know the truth. They wasted the one life they were given. And so the question, with all that said, the question I want to end on is this. How do we avoid that? How do we avoid turning out like Lot? Like, how do we avoid wasting the one life God has graciously given us? Well, to answer that question, I want you to listen to what John, the disciple of Jesus, says in 1 John chapter 2. He says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does, this is so important, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. When John talks here about the world, he's not talking about the physical place in which we live, okay? He is talking about the worldly system that is currently controlled by Satan and his demonic forces. This is the system that was at work in Sodom, and it's the same system that continues to be at work in our world today. And it's a very easy system to recognize because it's marked by three things, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. So if it feels good, I do it. If it looks good, I pursue it. And if it glorifies me, I will take it. John's point is simply this, that system is not of the Father, didn't come from him doesn't honor him, stands in complete contradiction to him. And because that system is not of the Father, it is passing away along with all of its desires. So in other words, John wants us to see that this worldly system controlled by Satan, that one day it will come under the judgment of God and it will be no more. And so the charge is simply this, don't love the world. (laughs) 
Don't love that corrupt system. Like why in the world would you love or live for a system that you know is not of God, that isolates you from God, that squeezes the love of God out of you and ultimately stands in the way of God's judgment? I mean, you could live for it if you want, but you're going to waste your life if you do so. Like on the contrary, if you want to live a life that matters, a life that counts, a life that makes a difference in the world for the sake of Christ and the glory of God, according to John, what do you do? You do God's will. And doing God's will simply means that you do what God wants you to do. You love him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You love your neighbors like you love yourself. You humble yourself and you become a servant to all. With the help of the Holy Spirit, you pursue Christ's likeness every day. You live for that purpose God has put on your life to bear his image rightly in the world. And as you're living, listen to me, as you're living, you remember every moment of every day that this world is not your home. And listen, when you live that way, your life actually starts to count for something that matters. And on the day when you close your eyes in death, And you're that person in the box at the front of the room. People like us, we're all going to show up. And we're not going to work hard to say nice things about you. No, we're going to genuinely celebrate your life as a life well lived. I don't know about you. That's what I want. That's what I want for me. And I don't want that for me so that a bunch of people like you can show up and glorify James one day. Like, I want you to show up one day if I, like, croak tomorrow and go, that was a man who poured out his life for the sake of Christ and the sake of other people. That's all I want, and I pray that it's what you want. But I know if we're going to get that right, we 